0: You're listening to Pop Health Week on Health Now Radio. This is Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, producer and co-host of Pop Health Week, with my colleague Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC. This audio mashup of top talent in the health innovation conversation was sourced from the recently concluded 19th Population Health Colloquium curated by David B. Nash, M.D., M.B.A., founding and current serving dean of the Jefferson College of Population Health. In this broadcast, my colleague and co-host Fred Goldstein engages with Robert Pearl, M.D., best-selling author of Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care, and Why We're Usually Wrong. Pearl is former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest medical group, with 9,000 physicians and 35,000 staff. Elizabeth Rosenthal, editor in chief at Kaiser Health News and author of *American Sickness: How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back*. Rosenthal is a graduate of Stanford University and Harvard Medical School. She briefly practiced medicine in a New York City emergency room before converting to journalism and nationally recognized physician, advocate, advisor, and author, Dr. Arkel Georgiou, former chief medical officer of United Healthcare, where she dismantled many of the company's legacy policies in order to minimize the bureaucratic burdens imposed on both patients and physicians. And with that, Fred, over to you.
1: Hello, this is Fred Goldstein with Health Innovation Media, and I'm here at the Jefferson Population Health Colloquium. It's the 19th year of this conference in Philadelphia, and I'm joined by Dr. Robert Pearl, a professor at Stanford and the author of Mistreated. Welcome. Thanks for inviting me here today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. You gave an incredibly great presentation this morning. I really loved it. and You talked about your book and some of the principles, so perhaps give our audience a little sense of what
2: Mistreated is about. So Mistreated is titled, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care and Why We're Usually Wrong and its premise is that American healthcare system is not only broken, but as a consequence of that, patients and clinicians are mistreated. It's why we think we're getting good healthcare. Americans believe the care is great. The data says we're not only 50% more expensive than anyone else in the world, but our outcomes, life expectancy, childhood mortality is at the bottom of the industrialized nations. And it's because the system is a 19th century cottage industry. It's fragmented. Doctors scattered across the community. It's paid piecemeal. The more you do, the more you get paid. Whether there's any good, no one really evaluates. The technology, we think we're at the cutting edge. It's left over from the last century. The number one way doctors communicate is by facts. And there's no structure to coordinate the care, to maximize the care. My dad died from a medical error. It's how I begin my book. 200,000 people die this year and every year of medical error. That's another 100,000, 200,000 from absence of prevention, failures to manage chronic disease. Almost a half million people dying every year prematurely. We can do better. We must do better.
1: Yeah, it was fantastic. And in one area I really enjoyed you talk about was you made it plain clear from your perspective that you need to get into decapitation. That's one of the four pillars or pieces you talked about. So discuss your thoughts on capitation.
2: When you create an environment that rewards people simply for doing more, they do more. I made the example of the contractor. You'd never bring someone in just say, do whatever you want to do, I'll pay you time and materials. Not because you think they're dishonest people. 'Cause you know that's the consequences. It's been estimated that 30% of what we do in the United States today has no value for patients. But when you get paid five or ten thousand dollars, when hospitals make thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, we don't ask those questions. As soon as you capitate, you start to prevent. As soon as you capitate, you focus on avoiding medical errors. As soon as you capitate, you start to ask the questions, does this procedure add much value to the patient? And when the answer often is no, the things that we do not only raise costs, but lower quality and risk lives. Right. And one of the issues obviously
1: faced by capitation, and you had it with Kaiser, because you had the health system and the, the provider group in one bundle is, that as those results have come in and you show these reductions in utilization, obviously that's a huge impact on the standing mega list of these healthcare facilities. So how should they be looking at that, and what should they be thinking about?
2: So when I was the CEO inside Kaiser Permanente, uh, we looked at the question of prevention and the impact on hospitalization. And what we found is that by being able to treat blood pressure, blood lipids, the kinds of things that we know contribute to cardiovascular disease, we could lower the incidence of a patient having a bad heart attack in half. Well, think about that. How much better is that for you, the patient? And of course, how much less cost there is. You're running a heart hospital in the community paid on a fee-for-service basis. The last thing you want is to prevent heart disease. You want to actually intervene and treat heart disease in a capitated system, one like Kaiser Permanente, you have the opposite incentives, and the result is that we became number one in the nation, according to the National Committee for Quality Assurance, for outcomes, not because we had better doctors, our doctors were excellent, but they were the same as elsewhere, or different medications or procedures, but because the capitated system focused the care, maximized quality, improved convenience, intervened sooner and as a consequence of all those right things lowered the cost of care. Yeah I think
1: you talked about context in the sense of a bunch of these issues. Can you discuss that?
2: Sure. The the interesting question to me is why do we think we're getting the best healthcare in the world when the reality is the data says every piece of objective information says we're not only lagging in most areas we're last Mm -hmm. and the answer is that context Shapes perception and changes behavior. I use the example of the Stanford prison experiment. They take normal students, put them together, half become the jailers, half the jailies, and within two days, the jailers see the, jail- the other people, the students, as dangerous. They're not dangerous at all, but in the context of a jail, that's how they see them. They make them do debasing work. The jailies see the jailers as sadistic. They're not, they're just other students, but context shapes perception, changes behavior. It can do it for the negative, or as I stress in the book, through the four pillars, by restructuring it, by integrating doctors, paying them a capitated way, the introducing technology and providing leadership, we can actually save lives, make care more convenient, higher service at lower costs. You also discussed this
1: issue of quality, and in particular, facilities that may not be doing a high enough level volume of service to one, have quality outcomes, and two, justify the existence of that service. So how should we and how do we get people to change that thinking in terms of the operators of those facilities?
2: What we know is that the two things that maximize quality are adequate volume and, number two, greater specialization. What we ask is what's the minimum number of things you got to do to be reasonably okay at doing something. No, the right question is how much volume does it take to be really good when you start asking that question, what you find out is that we have a massive redundancy of hospitals, massive redundancy of specialized service, major redundancy of specialists, and so changing all of that is quite difficult. Once you impl- introduce all four pillars, once you are capitated, you start to right size everything. As I mentioned in my presentation, I think that the Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, J. P. Morgan Chase group is going are going to do this and they're going to bring other people along they're not going to ask who's the best health plan they're going to eliminate the health plans they're not going to want to contract with all the hospitals they'll find the best of them the best of the doctors and i think the other people better understand the consequences that are coming and my recommendation to the current medical system is change now before it's too late Fantastic. We've seen that obviously with Walmart and their new program that says
1: we are sending our spines only to these three facilities, now our four facilities. So really interesting. One final area. We discussed this a little bit. You're a plastic surgeon by training, not what we would typically associate with somebody who's advocating for capitation and this change of the healthcare system. How did you sort of come to that and what
2: brings you there? So I finished medical school at Yale and then I came to the West Coast to train at Stanford. Uh, And I trained in, as you say, plastic and reconstructive surgery, but my practice has been all reconstructive or almost all reconstructive, focusing predominantly on children with a cleft lip and cleft palate. I've done uh, volunteer missions around the globe providing surgery to children who otherwise couldn't afford it for free. Uh, The plastic surgeon, because we fix, basically like to talk about it being the skin and its contents, Uh, We operate in the head and neck, the hand, the body. I come in contact with physicians in every specialty. I work with pediatricians, gerontologists. I work with uh, people in the emergency department, radiology department. And that's how I got the breadth of my knowledge Uh because I can see the same problems that would be impacting someone in plastic surgery, impacting someone in the ED, someone in the hospital, someone in the outpatient arena, the diagnostic suites. American healthcare system is broken. As the book is mistreated, why we think we're getting good health care, while we're usually wrong. It happens at every point of contact. I think that we can do better. And one of the legacies, I hope, is that my father's death from a medical error will not have been in vain because that and the stories that come from it will drive us to do the right things, to integrate care, to capitate, to invest in technology, and to provide leadership structure Patients deserve it. Doctors deserve it. The American Health System can once again be the best in the world. And I encourage the listeners to listen to the podcast series that I have now created or simply to go to my website, robertperlmd.com.
1: Fantastic. Well, Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you in a great presentation this morning. Thank you, Fred. So good to see you. This is Fred Goldstein with Health Innovation Media, and I'm here at the Jefferson Population Health Colloquium. It's the 19th year of this conference, and I'm joined by Elizabeth Rosenthal, the editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News and the author of An American Sickness. Welcome.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: It's a pleasure to have you here as well, and you just spoke this morning. Could you perhaps give give our audience a little sense of what you talked about?
3: Well, I, I think it's imperative for um, everyone who's involved in healthcare, from the CEOs of hospitals to, and pharma to patients, to become involved in taking back healthcare. And what I mean by that is, healthcare has become big business. It's run now according to the values of business, which are profit, return on investment, efficiency, those are not the values of good medicine. So I think what we need to do is say, OK, let's put care and caring and treating back on the front burner. And sure, you know, healthcare has to, you know, it has to stay solvent, but that shouldn't be its primary goal. And I think there are tons of things we can do. You know, our healthcare system is such a kind of mess now that people feel like, oh, what can I do? You know, I, I'm helpless. From, you know, doctors who oh, you know, I didn't go into medicine to deal with this, these crazy uh, medical record systems. Patients are like, oh, I guess I better write this check because it says I owe it. And I think we all have to make educate ourselves, learn that this businessification of health care is relatively new, and that we can say, no, this doesn't make sense. You know, what is this bill about? Why is it... Five thousand dollars. Show me an itemized bill. No, that wasn't done to me. I I, I think, you know, we know that uh, somewhere around fifty percent of hospital bills contain errors. So people should not accept this. You know, fifteen thousand dollars miscellaneous. You should say, what am I paying for? So I just want people to take those little first steps to say, I am a patient. I deserve this. Is my money now that I have a high deductible plan? and I want to know what I'm paying for and I want value. Mm-hmm.
1: So as a patient, obviously there's some generational issues, but I know you know, with my parents, et cetera, the doctor was highly elevated, whatever they said went a little bit less so. The millennials are now saying, hey, deliver this stuff to me, I want it now. Um, how do we get that message and that information, obviously your book out there, so that people can have enough literacy, health literacy to understand these issues?
3: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think of the book as, for patients, a guide to this, co- uh-huh. and, and doctors, a guide right. to this convoluted health system. Um, here's what you can do, and here's what you should feel entitled to do. For doctors, I, I like to say, you should be opening up this conversation with your patients. Like, what's your insurance plan like? How much, uh, you know, how much out-of-pocket costs can you tolerate? And also, I think doctors have to take on the role of, wallet protectors, right? Um, I always say to my doctor, okay, you say I need a knee x-ray. Tell me which of the five x-ray centers here will do it for cheapest and with good quality. And I want my doctor to say to the guy who's charging, you know, $1,000 rather than $100, i am not referring patients to you anymore because you're ripping off my patients. So I think we need a, a kind of doctor-patient alliance to insist on better value because the system isn't doing it organically and it will respond to pressure hopefully there'll be political pressure as well and, and we'll see some some um you know some pressure coming from washington and from state governments but again you know who elects people in washington and in state governments that's us so we as smarter patients as smarter doctors should be putting people in office, not just who say oh wow, you know, surprise billing is bad and hold hearings but who say surprise billing is bad, hold hearings and then say to the hospitals and insurers who have created this mess okay, it's illegal, you know Boston, no more and, and, and state governments have the power to do that and federal government has the power to do that but they're not because we're not pressuring them to do it
1: Right, and I think it's fascinating, your idea about the uh, doctor and the patient coming together. So how do we deal with the issue of two? One is the doctor's potentially not having that data because nobody has that data in many cases of what the charges are before you show up, whether for an MRI or CT. And secondarily, the idea of the doctors who are now owned by the health systems that have the facility, and you're then getting referred into that instead of the freestanding clinic down the road.
3: Well, I think part of it is um, a question of... To whom is physician's duty owed? Yeah. And it's to patients, not your institution, right? So my doctor's uh, computer, I know, is is programmed to order labs from the hospital where he practices. I also know that's a really expensive place to get lab work done. So I say to him, kind of, whose side are you on? He doesn't... I, I mean, frankly, you know, most doctors yeah. aren't... Uh, there's no kind of love for their institutions no, no. anymore, you know. Yeah. if I But if I say... Hey, don't just click that button and send it to the hospital. Send it to Quest or LabCorp or Commercial Lab where it will be in my network and cheap. He'll do it, you know So it, it's a bit of feeling empowered to resist a system that isn't serving people well.
1: I, I see your book as a mission kind of thing and, and, and the mission which is fantastic. It's this mission of giving people an understanding of what they need to do but also how they need to do this. So how do you do that? How do you give them that? What do they need to be thinking of?
3: Well, I mean, the 1st I always say the first part of the book is to make people understand that it doesn't have to be this way, how it evolved to this mess, and how much the profit motive created this system. And it's to get people angry, because you should be really <laughs> angry. Um, the second half, or it's really the, the last third of the book, is, well, here's what you can do. And it's very practical, and it goes from the individual down to uh, the, what we should ask from our policymakers. And I try and make it like you know there are letters in the back of the book that are almost like mad libs if you get a surprise bill here's the letter you should send to your hospital fill in these blanks and send it off don't don't write the check so i try and and give people really practical suggestions because i think it gets to what you're talking at that you know patients have to understand that they they can protest they can say to their doctor, hey, wait a second, why are you ordering that test? Where's, you know, do you own part of that freestanding surgical facility? And um, I think taking little steps, saying to your doctor, send my lab test to X lab, we'll we'll show you that you can do it and the world doesn't fall apart and your doctor still loves you and you still love your doctor. Mm -hmm. I mean, you do the same thing with a contractor. You do the same thing with, you know, when you're buying a house or a car and no one says like no one walks away and goes wow you're a lot of trouble um you know so i, I always tell people like just do what you do with your contractor if your contractor came in and said it's going to be five thousand dollars to renovate a bathroom and came and came, then sent you a bill for twenty thousand you would go wait this is outrageous but that happens all the time in healthcare. you know we get an estimate and it's like oh but that didn't include anesthesia oh it turned out to be much more no in other countries you get an estimate and the estimate is it you know so i think we just should be applying the standards we apply in all of our life to healthcare we've given healthcare a pass and time to stop Great.
1: so elizabeth could you give us some of your background that brought you to where you are today
3: well, I always like to tell people um, that I came to this book and to write this book from a place of love. My my dad was a doctor. His brother's a doctor. My family is filled with doctors. I trained as a physician. I worked in an ER. And I think the profession is really precious. Now, I, I moved to journalism, um, ironically, in the 1990s when the Clinton health plan was under consideration yes. because I thought wow, our healthcare system is turning to a really bad place and it could use some reform. And I find it both depressing and exhilarating that here we are 25 years later, 30 years later, talking about some of the same problems, but they're on steroids now. I think in the 1990s, our health system wasn't working very well for people who were poor or underinsured. Now it's not working very well for anyone. Now everyone hates it. So the good news of that is that... um, I do think we're at a tipping point for genuine change. I think we cannot keep going um, with our current model. So, um, I I do think it's it's really exciting having written the book. You know, when I started writing at the New York Times um, in the 90s with the Clinton health reform effort, I I didn't really I didn't think we needed big transformational change. Now, I think we do and i think we're ready for it i think you know we're seeing all the democratic candidates coming out now with what would have been considered unthinkably (laughs) radical plans even four five years ago now personally i don't think we're going to end up with something as dramatic as medicare for all right away but um i think people are ready for really impactful significant changes and Whether in the end we'll end up with a single-payer system or a more market-based system that um, has better methods and more effective methods to control price and quality, I'm not sure that's a political decision, but I I think it's very exciting that um, I think change is coming and it's coming soon.
1: I have to agree with you, and I want to thank you very much for your book and your thoughts because it really is about getting that patient to feel comfortable enough to talk with their physician and that physician to be comfortable enough to talk with the patient and understand the system and and those two guide the way through the healthcare system.
3: And for patients to feel like they understand enough about this system to vote for a plan rather than a slogan. Like it's really easy to say repeal and replace. It's real easy to say, you know, uh, we're going to solve all this with, uh, you know, a Medicare for all plan. But there are really hard choices to be made. And I think, um, as, as Donald Trump famously said, it is complicated, but it ain't that complicated. And it doesn't have to be that complicated. So um, we have some choices to make. And I want people to vote. At, I want to see healthcare care voters. Absolutely.
1: Well, thank you again very much, Elizabeth. Appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Hello, this is Fred Goldstein. I'm here with Health Innovation Media at the Population Health Colloquium here at Jefferson in Philadelphia. And I'm joined by Dr. Arkel Giorgio, an author and a book. The new one coming out is Healthcare Choices or has just come out?
4: It came out in February of 2017.
1: Oh, so it's been out for a while. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. That's great. So something definitely to take a look at and look up. So tell us a little bit about this. Obviously, we've been talking about a bunch of issues here, technology. We've been hit talking about social media. We've been talking about new analytics and things. But you're actually talking about what the patient should be doing and some of their role in the system. Is that
2: correct?
4: Isn't the patient's role the most important part of the system? So we should be talking about it more. And that's what this book is about. So the full name is Healthcare Choices, Five Steps to Getting the Medical Care You Want and Need. And here's the basis of the book we make 30,000 decisions a day in our life but when it comes to our medical care we get paralyzed and the more important the medical decision is the more we get paralyzed and don't speak up so in this book What I talk about is I describe why it's so important to be engaged in your care and then how to do it. Because while we all agree, absolutely, you should advocate for your own health, we don't know how to do it. We're not trained how to do it. So this is a five-step process. I lay it out in something called the CARES model that people can use to actually go um, really advocate for their own care and participate in their medical decisions.
1: So when you think about it, I know a lot of folks just really get fearful or they think, oh, it's the physician. I'm just going to let them make all the decisions. So I would assume some of those early steps, are they sort of to get them to think through what they need to do or get over the stress, or what are some of those?
4: Well, let's just start out with an overarching philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, which is that we need to have a level playing field when in a relationship with a doctor. Doctors and patients are on equal playing field. So, But let me explain that. Doesn't That doesn't mean that patients... Have the expertise of doctors. Doctors have clinical expertise, they have all of that training. We're not looking to have patients replace that. That would be dangerous. But, Patients have expertise in themselves, their preferences, their priorities, their values. They are the only ones who can decide on the trade offs that are right for them. So, the doctor is a medical expert, the patient is an expert in themselves. And to get the best care, you need to combine those two. So, that's the foundation. So, how do you go through the process of understanding your condition, knowing your alternatives, respecting your own preferences, evaluating your options, and then doing your part to get the best care that you can? that's what I lay out in the book.
1: So the first step for that really is, you talked about it, the physician's the expert, is this whole concept of health literacy. And it's obviously something that's very poor in the United States. It hasn't been an issue faced by a lot. Is that something you discuss in the book, how to get yourself up to knowledgeable on certain issues and things like that?
4: Absolutely. Health literacy is incredibly important. It's also important to lay out that you don't have to be as literate as a doctor. You have to be literate enough to understand your condition and to know, so what? If you have high blood pressure, so what? It's not just a number. So I really encourage the readers of the book to understand that every heartbeat against a high blood pressure gradient is like a mini, work out. Well, that makes mm-hmm. your heart tired. So it's things like that. Um, I think it's very important for people to use internet resources, not Dr. Google, but evidence-based resources to really understand their condition. And so that's, that's the starting point that if you can't understand the so what of any condition, you can't participate. Mm-hmm.
1: And how will you tell people to go and find the right Internet resources? Because obviously there's a huge plethora of information out there, and you mentioned Dr. Google. A big problem, a lot of people get a lot of bad information across the Internet.
4: There is a lot of bad information on the Internet. And so what I recommend is that people find, uh, when they're not sick, An evidence-based site, a credible evidence-based site. There is my favorite, and I have no relationship with Mm -hmm. them other than the fact I use them, is Mayoclinic.com. WebMD is okay, too. Johns Hopkins. um, All of these are credible sites. And then pick one site that you like most and use that as your go-to site. That should be your first starting point. Um, I like Mm Mayoclinic.com because it's formatted in exactly the same way for every single condition, so you don't have to learn how to navigate a new site every time you look something up.
1: So once you've then gathered that information, what sort of the next steps they should be looking at?
4: Well, the next step is that your doctor or your care provider is going to lay out what some of the options for treatment are, and then you as the patient need to say, and what else? What else? What are my other alternatives? And I stress evidence-based alternatives. Mm-hmm. So, for example, with sleep apnea, most doctors, if you have sleep apnea, will say, well, you need a CPAP machine. But what if you say, what else? Well, you may be a mild or moderate sleep apnea patient who might be eligible for a mandibular advancement device, which Mm -hmm. is, um, for those who may not understand what it is, it's like a a sophisticated retainer that moves the jaw forward and can be just as effective and more effective because people are more adherent to it. So ask what else and understand the risks and benefits, the medical risks and benefits of each of your alternatives. Mm -hmm.
1: And within that process, I'm I'm not sure if you addressed it or not, but the physician oftentimes may not potentially bring up those other options or may not have the level of expertise you might be looking for. Do you provide any information or, or insights around that area?
4: The insight is that doctors are human too right. and they're biased and it's not intentional. It's not malintent that they may not lay out everything, but uh, a physician who doesn't offer an evidence-based complementary and alternative medicine alternative isn't, um, is likely just not uh, knowledgeable about it. So mm-hmm. for example, so that's why you need to do research on your own and then bring up the question. Um, One question to ask a doctor that's really valuable is to say, you know, are 100% of patients with this condition treated this way? It's a really great way to ask the question to really get to the answer that you want as a patient.
1: And so now Ed, you've sort of pulled together the various options right. and the and the breadth of services that might be appropriate for you. What's the next step? Next
4: step is the hardest one because none of us are trained to do this. So you have to train yourself. That's why I really wrote this book. <laughs> so the R stands for respect your preferences. Well, what are preferences? I put preferences into three categories. One is medical, one is social lifestyle, and one is financial. So under medical, we talked a bit about that already. What mm-hmm. are the risks and benefits, the effectiveness and the complication rates just clinically for all of your alternatives. Your doctor should be able to articulate those to you. The second one is social and lifestyle. So how about transportation? How about caregiver support? How about family support? How about belief system? Um, How are those elements going to help or hurt you be adherent with any one of these alternatives? It's really important. And then finally, financial. What's covered by your insurance? What's not? What's your out of payment? What your out of pocket uh, going to be? And let's think about time away from work because that's a financial hit as well. So for example, if there's a woman who has stage two breast cancer and she has an option between a mastectomy and a she may choose to get a mastectomy because it's a one-and-done surgery as opposed to a lumpectomy that's going to require 17 visits to the radiation therapist later and if she needs to drive her kids to school and she's a single mom it's not going to happen so those are issues that are really important and they can affect what your out-of-pocket costs Mm -hmm. are and how long you're away from work
1: and you've now looked at these social financial medical work through that E, evaluate
4: your options. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to (laughs) say that that just takes deliberation. You have to take time and you need to do the hard work of weighing the trade offs. If life was perfect, there would be no trade offs, but that life isn't perfect. So you're going to give something up. And so, what's worth it to you? And you need to decide what's right for you, what decision you can make that lets you sleep at night. So you have to evaluate your options. And I always tell people do never do it in the presence of a professional or a physician, because the part of our brain, the part of our brain that has independent judgment at that moment shuts down and we become paralyzed and we just defer to the professional. So be at home, sit by yourself, talk with your family and deliberate. That doesn't mean use a software app. Deliberate. The pain of deliberation is important and make the decision that's right for you. And then the S, because I assume you're gonna ask me about that, is start taking action. You have your part to play and you need to be adherent to this plan, but also think ahead to what if this doesn't work? What if I'm not happy with my care? What if my care goes in the wrong direction? Don't make that decision in the future in the middle of a crisis, make it now. Mm -hmm. And so that's how the CARES model works.
0: And that'll have to be the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Robert Pearl, Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, and Dr. Arkel Georgiou for their invaluable insights. So for Fred Goldstein, Pop Health Week and Healthcare Now Radio, this is Greg Masters saying, bye now.